Hear the word of the Lord from John 5, 1 through 14. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which, was, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is the word of the Lord. How are we doing, Sacred City? Well, hey, uh, I really appreciate uh, that warm welcome uh, to our family. We are really looking forward uh, to making the transition to uh, Bettendorf. And uh, I'd like to start uh, just by saying thank you. Okay, I feel like there's a lot of thanks uh, to be said this morning. Uh, like I, like uh, Alex said, we have been here uh, since the week after Easter. And... Uh, Many of you might not know that, but uh, we came here on the heels of an incredibly difficult situation. And uh, first, corporate worship here on Sunday mornings has been a huge part of just healing and resetting uh, our hearts for our entire family. And so uh, it would behoove me if I didn't specifically uh, thank Joel for the way that he orchestrates this uh, gospel-filled liturgy week by week and how uh, that just like was such a boon to my soul uh, every week to come into that. I'm so thankful uh, for him. So thankful for the worship team uh, and leading us before the throne of grace each Sunday to reset our hearts uh, the way that we uh, desperately needed and still need uh, each week. Uh, and I want to say thank you to many of you who've just shown us personal kindness uh, in your interactions, even just seeing you on Sunday morning, uh, shaking your hand, uh, those kind of things. Uh, just, hey, like, you know, first Sunday in here, I remember uh, Ben Mo's back sitting right back here and saying, hey, good morning, Scott. Uh, you know, it's good to see you again, you know, and uh, just the way that that, like, made so much of a difference uh, in my heart. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, to many of you, to this church, uh, for being a home and a family uh, to us. Uh, on top of that all, right, uh, I want to say thank you uh, to Justin specifically uh, for choosing the Gospel of John to be the home where we're going to spend uh, for a while in God's Word because I don't know if he told you, but it's my favorite, okay? Uh, I don't know if you're supposed to have favorites like that, but I have uh, for the forever, right? Like since I met Jesus, uh, this has been my favorite. It's the first book that I ever opened uh, and God has uh, just profoundly spoken to me many times through the Gospel of John. Uh, one of the reasons why I like the Gospel of John so much uh, is because uh, John, not sure if you've realized this yet, uh, is an incredibly intentional communicator. 
you know? Uh, he like gets to his point. Uh, he tells you what he's going to tell you. And at the end, he summarizes and he says, this is why I told you all of this, right? There's seven signs uh, in this book uh, that point to Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, there's seven I am statements in this book. They're telling you that Jesus is God. There's seven-ish witnesses, right? Like people who like go back and forth over the numbers. Seven supposedly like the perfect number, right? So I say seven-ish in that way. Uh, but and all of that is to get to this point in John 20, 31. Uh, like I said, I love it when you tell me what you mean to say, right? And it says in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's our privilege this morning, church, to look at the fourth sign in the Gospel of John, that John put here to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might find life in his name. So as you heard during the reading of God's word in this story, Jesus walked into a man's life who's been stuck. This dude has been stuck in an extremely difficult situation for 38 years. And Jesus asks this invalid if he wants to be healed and then he says to him, simply, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the dude did it. When he interrogated, when Jesus was interrogated afterwards as to why he did this on such a day of the week, right? On the Sabbath, just a few days, uh, a few verses after our text in John chapter five, verse 17, I asked Justin if I could steal from that text next week. Okay, don't worry. Uh, I'm reaching a little bit here, but uh, it's so powerful. In verse 17, Jesus answers, my father is working until now and I am working. It's like, this is the calling card to go with this great miracle that he performed. Isn't it amazing when you consider the huge, profound effect that a father can have on his children? A father can have a huge effect on the life, even specifically of a son, sometimes positive, right? Like uh, for good and sometimes uh, in a negative way, but the connections cannot be ignored. This idea that a father can have a profound effect on his son and what he wants to do to it with his life is not a new one to us, is it? You see, I've noticed this uh, a lot over the years uh, in watching my son, Jacoby. People often say that Jacoby is like my mini-me, okay? And uh, so one of the ways that I've noticed this, uh, a few years back, not sure if you guys knew, uh, but in 2018, the Red Sox made this phenomenal run and, and won the World Series, okay? Uh, I'm a wicked big Red Sox fan. I can't help it, okay? Uh, but that year, uh, I saw this a lot because uh, that fall, you know, like I'd be watching a playoff game and, and the Red Sox would take down uh, some team like the Yankees and it's wonderful to watch them do that and, uh, and we'd be watching the game and then it'd be my kid's bedtime right in the middle of the game, right? I mean, we were sitting at that point, like probably he's like seven years old, something like that, eight years old maybe. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, it'd always be, hey, we got to put you to bed in the middle of the game. And he'd be disappointed. He'd want to keep watching. I'd say, dude, you got to go to bed. Mom said, you got to go to bed, right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'd put him in bed and we had to be really intentional about putting him in bed in that season uh, because multiple times... He'd like fake like he was asleep, right? Uh, he'd wait until we were downstairs watching the game again. He knew where his dad's going to be, right? And, uh, and he'd sneak out of his room and he'd climb behind our sectional in the basement and he'd watch like this around the corner of the sectional. Jacoby wanted to be doing what he saw his father 
doing. Uh, in this last season, uh, it's looked like this, right? Uh, on spring break, uh, I caught the bug, y'all. I went down with our family on spring break to visit some uh, family in Florida, and I started playing pickleball with my uncle. And uh, I tell you what, we played with him. We played with his, uh, his son, who's like a high schooler, a really great athlete. And, and I, I love the challenge of it. And uh, I grew up playing uh, ping pong. And so my skills started to translate, right? They don't translate into tennis, but they translate into pickleball. Uh, and I caught the bug. And I tell you what, if you were to ask Jacoby what his favorite thing that he's been able to do all summer would be, He'd say, Dad, it's, it's uh, or he'd tell you, hey, it's when I go with my dad to the park, city park, and we play pickleball. He might first tell you about being on the all-star team and winning a championship in baseball, okay? Because uh, that's a dad thing too. But the second thing he'd for sure tell you is, man, I just like to be doing what I see my dad doing at city park, playing pickleball. And the, the last example of this that I want to share with you, uh, and maybe most profound, and uh, I don't know, you should ask him this morning if you get a chance there or not, this service will be at the next one. Uh, but if you were to ask Kobe at least a, a year or two ago uh, what he wanted to do with the rest of his life, if you were to ask him, hey, like, what do you think you want to do when you grow up? Jacoby David Gaskill would have told you, I want to be a preacher and a baseball player. And it just like, it, it warms my heart because uh, he would tell people that and then he would say specifically, well, I want to play on a team that doesn't ever play before like 1 p.m. on Sundays because I'd really like to preach on Sunday mornings and then I'd like to go and play baseball later that afternoon. You see, this was Jacoby's way of saying, I am my father's son. He would do it with his actions even louder than he did it with his words. You see, when I think about this text today, Jesus heals a man who's been an invalid for 38 years on the Sabbath. And when he's asked about it, he gives this simple response. My father is working until now and I am working. And in John's gospel, right, which we already talked about, includes seven I am statements clearly denoting Jesus' identity. I think this is another way for Jesus to say, I am my father's son. This morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear because Jesus is working his father's redemptive works. We must believe the redemption Jesus came to do is for our good and for his glory. My sermon title is, I am my father's son. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus is the father's one and only son. We're going to see that we struggle, right? We don't believe the redemptive work God wants to do is for our good all the time. And we're going to see that God is glorified in us when our actions say, I am my father's child. Will y'all pray with me? God, what a grace it is to be together in corporate worship to have the opportunity to hear from you. We want nothing more than in this moment to hear from you. And so God, I pray that you would help me in my sinfulness and my humanity to get out of the way so that you can speak uh, to each and every one of us this morning. Would you unstop our ears? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us soft hearts to receive whatever it is that you want to say to us this morning? Would you do a work of grace that only you can in this place? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, where we're going to start this morning is this. Lesson number one, Jesus is his father's one and only son. You see, when I think back to all those things that I was telling you about, about uh, Jacoby's actions and how they showed him to be my son, one of the things uh, where one of the ways that they fall, that falls short is that Jacoby's actions don't actually show him to be uniquely my son in a way that's different from something uh, another young man could do. Okay, and I've noticed this uh, as I've coached over the years. I've done a lot of coaching, uh, and specifically, uh, mostly baseball, and coaching Jacoby's teams. And I've noticed that uh, other young men uh, who have enjoyed my influence in their lives have done some of the same things. They will start to say things a certain way, or they will start to do things a different way in order to imitate me in in a way that says, "Man, like I really do uh, like want to be like." This guy a little bit, right? The, the way that Kobe uh, snuck around and watched the game, you know, the way that he wants to play pickleball with me, the way that uh, he wanted to be, uh, or at least at some point in his life, wanted to be like uh, me when he grows up, didn't uniquely show him to be my son. But Jesus... And his actions in John's gospel and the miracle specifically that Jesus worked at this pool on the Sabbath day did set Jesus apart as God and Father's one and only son. And Jesus knew it, y'all. Jesus called his Jewish opponents to the mat. You see what I did there? There's like a mat joke right there. Um, uh, By saying, my father is working until now and I'm working. And by healing this man who could not get to the pool on his own, this man who had a debilitating condition for 38 years, Jesus says loud and clear, I am the one and only son of God. And his opponents got the message. Let's see it in the text. Look at verse 17 with me. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In order to see this more clearly, we're gonna look at the uh, minute details of this miracle. We're gonna talk about the setting of this miracle, uh, the man in this miracle, and the miracle itself, and even the controversy that it creates. So let's dive into the text. If you look at verses one to four, uh, first we see that Jesus healed this man at a pool, not just any pool, at a pool in Jerusalem, a pool in Jerusalem near the sheep gate called Bethesda, which literally means house of mercy. This was incredibly fitting given the desperate state of people laying there in hope of a miracle cure. I don't know about y'all, but I know the feeling of being desperately in need of the mercy of God. And maybe you didn't notice, but verse four is actually missing in our text. This is not because uh, they they forgot about verse four, okay? Uh, It's because the statement found there was in some early manuscripts, but not the earliest manuscripts. Therefore, scholars don't consider it a part of the scripture. However, verse seven, which scripture confirms that, uh, is where scripture confirms that people in Jerusalem in the first century at least believed what was said uh, in the fourth verse. So look at verses three and four here. It says, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. This is what verse four did say uh, in some of those manuscripts. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first 
after the stirring of the water was healed in whatever disease he had. You see, this man with a debilitating condition and many others like him waited at this pool for an angel to come and and stir it up. And they believed that the first one to get to the pool would be healed, okay? Uh, Picture this, you're you're at the public pool, right? And the lifeguard blows the whistle and everybody's got to get out, right? And then, like in that time when everybody's kicked out, one of the lifeguards jumps in and stirs it up special. And then there's like this race to get to the pool because somebody knows something special is gonna happen on the back end of it. This is what this is like, except for the people racing, many of them have a hard time even getting there. So the setting of this miracle is in a pool of mercy where people wait for a messenger from God to stir things up and bring them healing. I don't know about y'all, but it sounds all pretty charismatic to me. So let's move on here. We got the man, okay? That's the setting. Here's the man. One such man who's waiting at this pool has this debilitating condition for 38 years. Y'all, I know that 38 years seems like a long time to each and every one of us here today, but back in the day, right, in first century uh, Judaism, like many people, healthy people, aren't even living for 38 years, okay? This is a lifetime to them. It's safe to say that this dude had been waiting for mercy longer than anyone else at the pool that day. And Jesus just happens to pick him out, right? Look at verse five. One man's there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he says to him, do you want to be healed? Let's look at this miracle. After asking one question and giving a pretty lame excuse back to Jesus, Jesus does one better than this man's been waiting for. Without an angel stirring up the pool at all, without anybody doing anything to prepare the pool, Jesus looks at this man and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And here's one better. Immediately this man was healed and he does exactly what Jesus told him to do. As if this wasn't spectacular enough, Jesus did that after already having, if you're following along here this summer, making water into wine, after already zealously flipping worship upside down in the temple, after giving this young man on the brink of death a life from a long ways away, he does this. He works this miracle intentionally on the most controversial day of the week, As if to say to anyone listening, I am my father's one and only son. So let's dig into the controversy. I don't know about y'all. Y'all like a good juicy story with a little bit of controversy, you know, uh, where the the sides are developed and and this, this person sees it this way and this person sees it this way and you get to watch and you see it coming. Well, that's like one of these kind of stories, okay? And, and my, my favorite thing, and this is probably because I'm a preacher, but my favorite thing in these kind of situations when there's controversies like this is when there's that back and forth and it's like a ping pong game or a pickleball game, you know, it's going back and forth in the conversation. And then all of a sudden, somebody says this one liner and it's just like, mic drop, done. Well, this one has a controversy and a mic drop. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed, okay? Let's talk about the details around this controversy because not a lot of us are super familiar with all the details, ins and outs of Jewish law, right? 
Nothing in the Old Testament specifically prohibits an innocent activity like carrying your bedroll on the Sabbath day, okay? This man was uh, violating later Jewish traditions that have been developed. Uh, they developed hundreds of minutely detailed and burdensome rules about what kind of work was prohibited, including, if you look at the Mishnah, a code that forbade carrying an object from one domain to another. So he wasn't breaking God's law. He was maybe tripping over some details in what man made out of it. But Jesus in the midst of this, does not defend himself. He doesn't get into a rabbinic discussion on the nature of work. Rather, he claims he is working just as his father is working. He says, I'm working just like my father's working. You see, Sabbath was a day of rest that God created for us, right? In the creation account, God modeled it for us by creating for six days and resting on the seventh. And in the Ten Commandments, God said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath did and still does matter to God. But even though Jesus knew all of that and so much more, right? On this day, Jesus didn't choose to argue with his opponents about the semantics of the Sabbath. Instead, Jesus made a definitive statement about his identity. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Here's the deal. If you went to Genesis chapter two, you would find that indeed it teaches that God rested on the seventh day of creation. But if you went to all the Jewish rabbis then, and if you went to understanding scholars now, they would agree that God continually upholds the universe by the word of his power. He doesn't take a day off a week in upholding the universe, right? He is still working by the word of his power. So after working this miracle on the Sabbath, Jesus lays it out for his opponents with this one line, essentially saying, I am God the Father's one and only son. Mic drop. This would have been one of the most epic moments of all time if they just gave him a microphone. I don't know what they were doing. But even knowing all that, right? Like as we think about this story, I think uh, we would tend actually toward this attitude uh, that we see in this man. Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? Jesus looks him square in the eyes. This guy's been there for who knows how many years, right? He's been in this condition for 38 years. I don't know if he's been waiting at that pool every day. I don't know what that's looked like. But he asks him a simple question. Do you want to be healed? And he gets a lame excuse back. You see, I think we're like him. I think lesson number two is true of each and every one of us at some point in time, and it's this. We don't believe that the redemptive work that God wants to do is for our good. So back up with me to the early days of following Jesus for Scott at UNI uh, back in college, okay? Uh, I was a John Piper fanatic, y'all. I would eat anything that that dude served from the book of Romans, right? Like he preached through Romans for who knows, felt like a decade or something. Uh, it was probably like three years. But uh, in his classic book, right, Desiring God, John Piper summarized the philosophy of the Christian life as this, like one sentence, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We actually uh, shared it together this morning and uh, um, we, we, we confessed this together. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says something similar. The first question there is, what is the chief end of man? 
And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Piper made this, uh, this slight correction. He says, no, 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 it's, uh, let's enjoy God by, or let's, let's glorify God by enjoying him forever. I don't know if I'm correcting any catechisms, okay? But like, that's Piper. In other words, I think we need to believe that there's a sweet spot where living the way that God created us to live overlaps our good with his glory. This is the essence of what John Piper calls Christian hedonism. And I say all that because I think one of the main reasons that we don't see more of Jesus' redemptive work in our lives is because we have something in common with this man who has a debilitating condition. Now, we, we can walk. You might be able to see physically, but there's something that you share with him in your heart. And it's unbelief. It's that we don't believe that God's redemptive work that he wants to do in our lives is both for our good and for his glory. Read between the lines with me this one question that Jesus asks this man. Look at verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there. Remember, we've been talking about this in the gospel of John. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man, right? So he doesn't just see this dude's outward condition. He sees his inward heart condition. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he says to him, do you want to be healed? I know we are prone to assume that this man would want to be healed, but the adults in here know what it happens when you assume, right? I ain't going to say that. Not in Justin's pulpit, not in any pulpit, all right? Jesus, on the other hand, knew what was in this man's heart, right? He saw this man, and I think he saw in this man a very similar heart to the one uh, illustrated for us in the movie Shawshank Redemption in the character Brooks Hatland. Y'all remember Brooks? Anybody seen uh, Shawshank Redemption? You with me? Brooks is the old man in Shawshank Redemption. He's an inmate in the Shawshank State Prison from 1905 to 1955. And although his crimes never revealed, murder is presumed due to the lengthy prison sentence. He's this old man who's a librarian in the prison from 1912 until the day that he was released. Think about this. Brooks became an inmate at such a young age and he was imprisoned for such a long tenure but that's essentially all that he knew was the life of an inmate. The idea of being set free for Brooks was a fearful one. Living within the confines of the prison was all he had known. He knew how the system worked inside the prison. He knew what he needed to do every day. He knew where he needed to be. He was actually needed by some people there to fulfill a purpose. And he did not believe being released from the prison was for his good. So you know what he did about a week before he was supposed to be released from the prison? He waits for one of the dudes to come into his library and he comes up behind him with a knife and, and, and fakes like he's gonna slit his throat. He tries to commit another crime so that they would keep him in prison because he didn't believe that being set free from Shawshank prison would be for his good. I think if you ask Brooks, do you want to be released? I'm convinced he would have hidden behind some uh, lame excuse, just like the man in our passage this morning. Translate this into our lives today. I think many of us need to be healed, 
I think many of us here this morning need to experience God's redeeming work in our lives. But if we were asked straight up to our face, just like this man, I think we would hide behind an excuse because we're just not sure that God's healing is best. We don't want to experience the redemption that Jesus came to work in our lives because we've been in our current situation for quite some time. We kind of have our hands on the wheel. We know where we're going in this situation and we don't like the unknowns. We don't like being out of control. We don't know about that. And so we sit here not believing that God is good and that the work that he wants to do in our lives is both for his glory and our good. You see, some of us have been trapped in workaholism for so long in our lives that we don't, we, we, we just think we need to be this way to provide for our families and, and we don't want to experience Jesus' redemptive work in our lives. We can't imagine what it would be like to think about anything other than our work first thing in the morning when we wake up in the morning. We can't even begin to wonder what it would be like to wake up thinking about Jesus caught up in his word to put him number one in our hearts, to put our spouse number two, to have our kids up here somewhere before work in the order of loves in our hearts. You see, some of us have been uh, trapped for so long, imprisoned by our idolatrous desire for companionship that we don't want to experience the healing that Jesus came to bring us. We can't even imagine what Jesus could do in our lives during a, single, uh, a season of singleness where we could live in biblical community, lean hard into the grace of our ever-present companion, Jesus Christ. Some of us are stuck. Some of us are stuck in bitterness. Yeah, I was there for a while this summer. Holding a person's wrongs over their head. And we don't, we don't want to experience the freedom that Jesus can bring us through forgiveness. We can't even imagine what it would be like for our heart to like let go of the wrongs done for us, against us, and trust God. He says, he says I will avenge it. We don't even know. We're so stuck. We don't even know that letting go of that would not only be better for ourselves, but it would also be good for the people around us. See, we don't believe that God's redemptive work in our lives is both for our good and his glory. See, I believe in some way, shape, or form this morning, each and every one of us here needs to consider this question as coming from Jesus. He's looking you in the eyes this morning and he's saying, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And we need to slow down. We need to pause long enough to actually consider what our heart level answer is. And we might need to invite somebody in our MC into our response and, and they might need to go back and forth with us so that we can actually get to a place where our hearts come in line with what God wants for us. You see, one of the most beautiful things about this passage, though, is that Jesus heals this man anyway. Jesus didn't heal this man in spite of his excuse. Jesus healed this man excuse and all. This is the grace of God toward us in Christ. Amen? Don't miss this, church. This man didn't have a getting into the pool problem. This man had a problem believing 
that a healed life in Jesus would be better than the panhandler life that he had been living for years at that pool. And Jesus healed him anyway. Hear now the good news of the gospel. God was most glorified when Jesus Christ and his actions said, I am my father's child. Jesus' redemptive work, church, it's for our good. Sacred City, it's the most uh, important thing that each one of us believe that the most God-glorifying moment in all of history was also the moment when God accomplished his greatest good for us. I don't know if you checked your history lately, but on a cross at Calvary almost 2,000 years ago, God was most glorified in Jesus Christ as he sacrificially laid down his life for our good and the glory of his Father. Remember, Jesus lived a holy life. He had every reason to get up off that cross or to avoid that outcome. But scripture says he laid down his life of his own accord so that we who believe in him might receive the good gifts of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And the thing is, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and his resurrection three days later also shed an incredible amount of light on his identity as his father's one and only son. We only got to go back a couple of chapters in order to see that in John 3, right? The verse that we all know since we were little, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, here it is, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God the father, he gave us his son. He sent him here to save us. And then his son makes his father proud, shows himself to be the one and only son of God by giving himself for us. Church, we can believe that the healing that Jesus wants to bring in our lives, we can believe that the redemptive work Jesus wants to do in us right now is for our good. And here's why. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus proved it to us by working his father's redemptive works all the way to the point of death on a cross. And because he didn't merely lay down his life, but he also took it up again in Christ, we're able also to live a life that reveals to the world around us that we too are our father's children. You with me? Lesson number three is this. God is glorified in us when our actions too say, I am my father's child. Here's the deal. If you sit here this morning as a Christian, scripture is crystal clear that one of the identities that we have in Christ is you are a child of God. And if you caught anything that I've said this morning, then hopefully Jesus' actions at the pool of Siloam have reminded you both about his identity as the one and only son of God and yours as a child of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. If you have repented of your sin and put your your faith, sorry about that, in Jesus, then you have been adopted into God's family. Not only is God your father, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the family where you live now. And this morning, my prayer for each Christian here is that we would slow down and consider what our actions say about our familial identity. Would people be able to look at our lives over the past week and say, hey, that dude right there, he must be in the family of God. 
I can tell by the way that he walks. I can tell by the way that he talks. I can tell by the things that he's doing. Certainly, there's some thoughts and actions that might stand out to you as you think about the last week. And you're like, well, maybe if somebody didn't know that, they might think that. Maybe God's calling you to filter those things through the good news of the gospel so that you can hear from him and be transformed. And if this is true for you, then I want this last part. Uh, I want you to listen up because Jesus said this to this man after he had been healed. You with me? In verse 14, Jesus says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The first thing I want us to hear in Jesus' words is how Jesus tells this man to see. Y'all, I told you, I know that you can see, right? I know you're not blind people. Uh, I know you're not lame people. I know you can walk. But Jesus says to this man, see. I don't know if y'all are fans of Paul Tripp, but I, I mean, I went from John Piper to Paul Tripp at some point in my life. He was my man crush for a good amount of time. That mustache is so wonderful, y'all, okay? <laughs> I just can't get enough of it. But Paul Tripp, and one of, the, one of the things that he repeatedly says over and over again is he talks about our blindness, that we're blind in our sin, right? And we need, uh, Hebrews 3.12 uh, says that we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to, to speak into our lives, to exhort us every day, in the midst of our blindness. You see, Jesus first says to this young man, after he's been healed, he says, see. Y'all, we've been given scripture as this mirror to see into our lives. The first thing we need to do is see. Second thing that he says is, see, you are well. And so secondly, we need to see that what Jesus says about us is more important than what anyone else says about us. Amen? What Jesus says about us is more important than what anyone else says about us. You see, the enemy, the father of lies, Scripture calls him, we need not put much stock in any of the darts that he throws our way. He is going to say things about us, but the things that Jesus says about us are far more important than anything he could say about us. People around us, they can say things that hurt us. They can say things that are not true of us. They, they do say those things. But what Jesus says about our lives, what Jesus says about our identity is far more important than anything they say. Here it is, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He knows what's in your heart. So what he says about who you are is more important than what anyone else has to say, church. Jesus says that if you repented of your sin and put your trust in him, then you are a child of God. And as an adopted member in God's family, you have many privileges. The most important of which is that you don't have to wonder how God sees you. The New Testament's filled with truths about who you are in Christ. So when the enemy whispers into your ears telling you you're not well, or when people around you say things about you that are not true, you need not fend for yourselves. Instead, we must fall back into God's word and invite Jesus to speak to us. He's going to say, see, you're a branch. You're just a branch, Scott. See, you're a branch and you're connected to me, the true vine. I'm the true vine, Scott. This is where all of your nourishment and your fulfillment comes from. It's not in what other people say about you. It's not in what other people think about you. It's in me. And you know what? My father, he's the true vine dresser. 
and the vine dresser, he might prune you from time to time, and that might be hard, but you know what else he does? He's going to protect you, and he's going to give you everything you need to grow. You see, we got to lean back in on scripture and let Jesus and his word tell us who we are in Christ. His voice is more important than any other voice in our life. And the third thing he says, he goes on to say, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And we got to see this in context, okay? Because this dude, I'm just going to go out on a limb and tell you, I'm guessing he sinned. But Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. You see, Jesus did one of the seven signs in John's gospel with this specific sign, Jesus cried out, I am my father's one and only son, remember? And now that this man has been met with the grace of God in an incredibly profound way, Jesus says to him, sin no more. It seems to me that Jesus is inviting this man to live in such a way that shows God the father to be his father and him to be a child in that family. Family, our heavenly father is holy. And living in his family calls us to holiness. This is essentially the God saying, hey, be holy as your father in heaven is holy. And as I read between the lines on this statement from Jesus, I hear him calling this man to be holy like his father is holy. But this week, I've specifically been thinking about the big picture of, of statements like this about our familial identity. So uh, this is stuck in my brain. A few years back uh, at our church, we preached through uh, um, the, the Lord's Prayer. We did this series on the Lord's Prayer. And I remember it very vividly because I preached these sermons outdoors, okay? So y'all know what season that was in. It was not my favorite, all right? Uh, but uh, we were preaching outdoors because of COVID, right? And the church uh, did this series on the Lord's Prayer. And as I was studying for this series, one of the books that I read was this book by N.T. Wright uh, on the Lord's Prayer. And I haven't been able to shake something that I, I learned from this book. Recently, the idea has come back to my mind almost daily as I've been trying to put into practice. Uh, there's this little booklet called A Simple Way to Pray by Martin Luther. And he just talks about, okay, uh, after you read the Bible and do your work, right? Like, so I'm walking in this park uh, morning by morning, uh, praying through the Ten Commandments and praying the Lord's Prayer uh, regularly. And as I've been praying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I've been thinking, our Father, my vocational Father, because N.T. Wright says, hey, think about how a dad in first century Judaism Think about that role, right? Like there, there's very rarely any pictures in that season of somebody who didn't grow up doing what their daddy was doing. If your daddy was a carpenter, you're going to grow up to be a carpenter, right? Uh, if your daddy was a Levit Levitical priest uh, that like specifically worked with these instruments, you were stuck working with those instruments. You weren't going to sing and play some other instrument. You were going to learn to do what he did. Your father was not only your father, but he was your vocational father. I remember N.T. Wright asking his readers to consider God as our vocational father. Now let this idea sink in a bit. God, our father, who art in heaven, he's holy. 
He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is love. He is jealous for our worship. He is all powerful. He is wise. He is good. And those of us who have been healed through the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, I believe he says, go sin no more. Translation, I am holy, so go live in such a way that reveals my holiness to those around you. Translation, I am love. As a child of mine, you are to love your neighbor so well that they can't help but notice that you're part of my family. Translation, I am wise. Live with such wisdom that your coworkers know that there is a wisdom from above at work in your life. So remember how we started off this morning? We've talked about the profound impact that a father can have on his son's actions. You see, in Christ, scripture says, we have been adopted into the family of God. We have God as father, sons, we are sons and daughters in his family. And we can say along with Jesus, God is my daddy. Maybe, just maybe, as you consider what it looks like to live as a child of God this morning, you need the encouragement that I needed to see this week. Imagine Jesus working the redemptive works his father was working all the way to the point of death on a cross. No matter how difficult that was, no matter how much suffering he endured, consider how it probably felt like a little bit less of a sacrifice knowing what Jesus knew that he was doing his father's will and he was making his daddy proud. In the same way, Sacred City, my prayer for us this morning is that we would believe our daddy is chiefly concerned with his glory and our good because to him, they're tied together through the gospel. May we be a people who make our daddy proud by imitating Jesus and laying down our good for the good of others around us by enjoying God forever. Remember earlier I mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith and what it said about the chief end of man. Well, let me share with you quickly what it says about the, the, the gift that we get to partake of at the Lord's table this morning. It says, our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, he instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him. And here it is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. It goes on to say, for how great it is to dwell upon the benefits given to us in this meal. The Lord's Supper is a seal that binds us to Christ. It's a food for our soul. It's a means of God's grace that provides for us spiritual nourishment and growth. And it's a covenantal bond of communion with God and with one another, with the church, with those who believe. Will y'all pray with me before we partake in the Lord's Supper together? 
God, we thank you so much uh, for the way that you speak to us through your word. We thank you for your grace and its impact in our lives. For those of us here today that have yet to put their hope and trust in you, God, I pray that uh, there would be a clear picture of what you've done on the cross through your life, death, and resurrection, and they would be able to move a step closer this morning towards believing that you did that for their good and also for your glory simultaneously. I pray, God, for the rest of us who are uh, adopted sons and daughters in your family, that you would help us day to day by the power of your spirit, enabling us by your grace to be able to do actions, to think thoughts, to speak words that show that we are truly your children and that reveal to the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, and the like, that you indeed are God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.